0: Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911.
1: Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, two man car. My name is Jess Romero, Paul Clay. Monday morning. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us another week to love you and serve the Lord. Paul, in the midst of, in in the midst of uh, working out our salvation in fear and trembling, and in the midst of knowing that we are tracking towards the New Jerusalem, towards heaven, which that's the goal for every Catholic Christian. Amen. But, but in the midst of that, Paul, there are some pitfalls. There are some sometimes uh, people can step in quicksand. There are bear traps out there, and one of the things that we've seen that the devil has set up in the last couple of decades in the Catholic Church is a masonic infiltration yes we've seen for example I mean you've you've had some uh, some intellectual giants that have been writing about this for a long time the wanderer the remnant Taylor Marshall Father Muir just came out with a book It's called uh, murder in the 33rd degree Uh, Michael Davies you've had a lot of people talking about this Uh, we've got a good succinct article by Brian Miles he's an evangelical convert to the Catholic faith and it's a three-part article. This is part three where he talks about the history of infiltration. Some of it he gets into the weeds, but some of it is, is pretty interesting uh, so you can understand what happened. He tracks it right around the council in the early 60s, right around Vatican II. So uh, let's jump into this and stuff and share some of the, some of the more important points of, this, of uh, Brian Miles' article. I think he did a great job. He said... And it's part three. It says according to George Cardinal Pell, by the way, one of the good cardinals. This is a guy that they uh, they had they had arrested on false charges over in Australia, accusing him of uh, of molesting kids. He was acquitted, fully acquitted. But the reason they had him they set him up uh, with these false charges is because he was seen he was working in the Vatican under Pope Francis and Pope Benedict. And he started seeing uh, that there was a lot of dark money coming in and he started blowing the whistle, so he had to pay a price.
2: So, yeah, so what so what an easy way to discredit somebody, huh?
1: Yeah, just say he's a child molester, yeah. Yep. So the first paragraph says, According to George Cardinal Pell, this this guy's one of the giants of the church, the build up to the second Vatican Council was an enormously exciting time, a time of great intellectual foam ferment. We were caught up in this great movement of reform and we were wildly over optimistic. Indeed, many in the church appeared so anxious to throw open a few windows and to let in some fresh air. They simply failed to properly investigate what sort of spirits were lurking about the sills. Hmm. Good sentence. I like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was not the Holy Spirit. These were evil spirits. Mm -hmm. They weren't evil, just overly eager to announce the triumph of the progressive dream. Yet, unfortunately, given that the excessive optimism is a thing all too easily manipulated, it wasn't long before the caution of Pope Pius XII, one of the great popes, gave way to the aggiornamento, that's Latin for throw open the windows, gave way to the aggiornamento of John Twenty-Third, And the Bride of Christ found herself poised to take those first fateful steps down the proverbial garden path. Let me share the next two paragraphs and I'll tell it over to you. It began with the rehabilitation of certain suspect theologians whose work had taken on a distinctly Masonic flair. In other words, Pope Pius XII, he already knew about Masons in the church and he, was, he already had a commission to investigate them. Uh, it says, It is now a well-established fact that John Twenty Third was often at pains to distinguish himself from the disciplinary rigor of his predecessor, Pius XII. As such, and, and by the way, John Twenty Third was the one that called Vatican II. He's the one that convened the council in 1962. Um, so, and it, it says, As such, in a foretaste of the medicine of mercy, which he would later prescribe in the council's opening address, good Pope John not only reversed the censure and suspe- suspension placed on various proponents of the new theology, which was Marxism, but also personally appointed perhaps their most notorious offender as an expert advisor to the council. You see some big step missteps right there. John Twenty-Third again, started elevating masons in high places. Indeed so strong was the pontiff's faith in the remedial power of mercy that he apparently thought it sufficient to restrain proponents of the quintessentially Masonic idea that truth not necessarily have a permanent value, but can and indeed should change with time and according to the demands of circumstance. Classic modernism right there. Mm -hmm. In in other words, it was presumably thought when faced with a a pledge of pastoral leniency, the advocates of ideological relativism, a dogma which Pope Leo XIII identified as foundational to Freemasonry, would somehow meekly resolve to abandon their errors. In other words, John the Twenty Third wanted to separate himself from Pope Pius XII, who he saw as kind of mean and militant. And he figured that be nice and lenient with the liberals, and uh, they'll, you know, they'll they'll step in line, they'll become obedient and embrace orthodoxy. Well, that that so, experiment failed, Paul. Yeah,
2: Jess. It sounds like um, what the author here is saying is that uh, he didn't see it as necessarily a diabolical thing but that uh you know people were jockeying to push their positions and uh obviously uh the liberals won out here and i just wanted to you know to clarify uh, the new theology wasn't marxism but it was definitely influenced right by marxism Correct. um so uh, the catholic church has never adopted marxism as a, as a new theology uh but uh, those on the left uh will uh, definitely, uh, ha- you know, their agenda is, is, is basically uh, borrowed from Marxist uh, ideology.
1: Yeah, and the best way I could describe it is this way, is the new theology, they appeal to naturalism. In other words, there's always natural explanations for everything, like the, 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 the feeding of the 5,000, you know, the parting of the Red Sea. There's natural explanations for that. Well, that's influenced by Masonic thought because Masonic thought is a completely natural, you know, natural religion that denies uh, the, sovereign, the sovereignty of, of, uh, of the one true God and miracles and the supernatural. Well, let's continue here. And, Jess,
2: and, and by the way, the li- liberalism, it doesn't change. It, it's the same thing that the leftists do with the Constitution. Instead of reading the Constitution for what it says, you know, they look at it as uh, something that's relative, something that's uh, subject to change, uh, something that must change with the with the times. And that's essentially what the modernists think with the church, that the church must adopt itself to Modern times to the modern world,
1: correct, and
2: uh, therein lies the problem.
1: You, you got it,
2: Jess. Where does so where?
1: Predictably, predict. It says you see it. Predictably, they did not get the memo, and consequently, continue their mischief almost as soon as the council began. These are the liberals and modernists. Yet, before exploring this theme any further, it should be first noted that despite their penchant for promoting Masonic principles, that's naturalism. Everything has a natural explanation. It is not the intent of this essay to prove that the devotees of the New Theology were themselves masons. It's certainly a possibility, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. What does matter is that their teaching demonstrates, whether willingly or not, that they were at least informal disciples of the Alta Veda, mm. who, little by little, had been imbued with humanitarian principles. Nowhere's... Than the council's rejection of the carefully crafted preparatory schema. Drafted as of John the 23rd, the schema developed by the Central Preparatory Commission constituted the church's established means of steering a council towards conclusions in concert with sacred tradition. It would therefore seem wholly appropriate that these documents be accorded a place of honor in the council's proceedings, but it was not. In other words, the schema. These are these are the first drafts of the documents of Vatican II that were saying we've got to hold to tradition, but uh, the liberals in at the council and, and just gonna be honest with you, at Vatican II you had liberals and you had uh, Orthodox. The council mm-hmm. was split. And it's it's painful to say this, but but that's exactly what you had in the 60s. As, yeah. as reported as reported by Romano Amerio, a historian uniquely positioned as both a council advisor and member of the Central Preparatory Commission. A distinctive feature of Vatican II is its paradoxical outcome by which all preparatory work that usually directs the, the debates marks the outlook and foreshadows the results of a council. It was nullified and rejected from the first session onward. To this point, Romano Amerio recalls that after a heated debate regarding whether the plans drifted to guide the council ought to be permitted to actually guide the council a vote was actually determined if the schema should continue to rule or be entirely redrafted. In other words, the schema, the first draft was saying, we've got to make sure that whatever comes out of Vatican II, it, it holds fast to tradition. But there was already a pushback from the modernists at the council at, at that moment. Paul, you want to continue?
2: That's because we talk about that, in a sense, that was the coming out party, right? For And, and you know, they wanted to seize the opportunity to make... Uh, the necessary changes in the church in order to yeah. allow their... Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The vote in favor of redrafting failed. As outlined in the council bylaws, it did not garner the two-thirds majority needed to affect a procedural change. Consequently, it was announced that the existing schema would continue to act as the basis for the council's deliberations. And so they did, at least until later that evening when a series of extra conciliar demands were delivered to John the Twenty-Third, insisting that he overrule the vote.
1: In other words, do we hold fast to tradition? No, we've got to overrule that vote. Mm. We're talking about the Masonic infiltrating into the Catholic Church. There's a good article written by Brian Miles. Two-man card, Jess Romero, Paul Clay will continue giving... You are analysis. Stick around.
0: Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151.
1: Soul so, Patrol, so, Jesus 2 Man Card, Jess
2: Romero, Paul Clay, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, Jess. So I just had a question for you. So, uh, uh, so they insisted that uh, Pope John the uh, Twenty Third overruled the vote. Now, I guess this shows you the actual influence uh, that the liberals of the council had at the time. That they, you know, and and the fact that they felt that John the Twenty Third possibly was their man. Is that what you're you're getting out of that?
1: well you can see that uh, they're, they're at least trying to influence him if not if not bully him if not push him around okay okay that's, that, that's pretty obvious
2: yeah this intervention which at one uh, which at one blow reversed the council's decision and departed from the regulations governing the the gathering certainly constituted a breaking of the legal framework and a move from a collegial to the monarch, monarchical method of process of proceeding. Well, there you have it, Jess. Uh, um, In the circumstances in which it happened, this intervention constituted a classic case of a pope imposing his authority on a council and is all the more remarkable in that the pope was at the time portrayed as a protector of the council's freedom. The exercise of authority was not, however, something the Pope did on his own initiative, but the result of complaints and demands by those who treated the two-thirds majority required for the council rules as a legal fiction and ignored it in order to get the Pope to accept the rule of bare majority. Man, this sounds like the U.S. Congress, Jess.
1: Exactly,
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. this this yes. this sounds like we're going to get rid of the filibuster here. And, uh, you know, we don't need a two-thirds majority, but what we need is just a bare majority. And again, for the Pope to do this, you know, Jess, I'm having a hard time defending him in that, uh, you know, um, you know I don't know that he was bullied but he he did it uh, look it's it sounds like without even a thought
1: yeah yeah you're right hey, this is the fact of history we're just we're just repeating yeah. the facts I mean all these yeah. people all these people are dead and they went to their particular judgment and I hope they died in a state of grace amen the precise, need- while the precise manner by which the Pope was prevailed upon remains unclear, what is nevertheless manifest how utterly conflicted the pontiff appears in the course of this action, in this course of action. Only the month before, in his opening address of the council, the same John Twenty-third had this to say about the preparatory schema, the preparatory draft. He said, quote, There have elapsed three years of laborious preparation during which a wide and profound examination was made regarding modern conditions of faith and religious practice and of Christian and especially Catholic vitality these years have seemed to us a first sign an initial gift of celestial grace mm. close quote
2: yeah well that explains yeah. a lot <laughs> yeah it's so so, so go ahead now just one of the comments so it sounds to me based on this revelation here mm-hmm. that uh the pope initially accepted the original schema thought it was a gift from god but it you know yeah the way the way the right. way yeah, and the way evil influences work, Jess, they they work behind the scenes. We don't know then what pressure, like you said, was put on Pope John the Twenty Third in order to allow them to have their way. You know, it's unfortunate, but we're talking about. Uh, Men here, and we're talking about, uh, you know, as as it says in sacred scripture, the heart of man is desperately sick and exceedingly wicked. And so, uh, yes, if the church was infiltrated, like uh, many believe that it was, uh, there could have been all kinds of blackmail going on.
1: Absolutely, it makes sense. Thus, what whatever ultimately led to the Pope's abrupt about face, the record shows that the most prominent proponent of this contempt for conciliar law was Cardinal Augustine Bea, Well-versed hmm. in the school of the New Theology, it is illuminating to read his eminence's own words alongside those of Pope Pius, Pius XII's encyclical Humani Generis. In an interview given on the eve of the council, Cardinal Bea was asked about the obstacle of doctrinal intransigence in the ecumenical effort to foster union with the members of various Protestant sects. Now, here's my comment. I don't know why Vatican II was so uh, so concerned about unifying with you know Protestants. We, we the only way you can unify with the Protestants is based on truth. Yeah. But a lot. But a lot of the, the liberals they think no, they're not ready to hear the truth. Well, neither are the liberals, by the way. And so a lot of people figure you know we just got to dumb things down and make it look more Protestant this way we'll get them in. You you have to engage Protestants at the highest level. That's yeah. how they become Catholics. You don't yeah. get, you don't, you don't engage them in the, in the, in the, in the, you know, the bottom, you know, common denominator, like, Hey, let's all get electric guitars. Let's all get drums. Yeah. Hey, let's all get, it, a light it, show. It,
2: you know, just, it is deeper than that. But, uh, it's funny last week I read, uh, I was reading a little bit of, uh, Car- uh, John Henry Newman, uh, and he basically a convert from, uh, the Anglican church, as you know, and a great, great theological giant, mm-hmm. uh, In in comparing Protestantism with the Catholic Church, his assessment was that we're really talking about two different religions. I mean, that was what he said. And that was, you know, I I don't have the quote in front of me, but I can easily reference it. uh, And I thought that that was pretty amazing because that's somebody who came from Protestantism. And he had, you know, his finger on the pulse and he saw that much of a difference between... Uh, uh, the Catholic Church and what we teach and and actually, Protestantism. That's very interesting.
1: That's right. Yep. Well, good, uh, good analysis. It says here, Religious thought and, sci- and scientific theology have developed differently among Catholics and among non-Catholic Christians. Protestantism has also felt the strong influence of modern philosophical systems because it is less bound to tradition and less subject to authoritative control. Consequently, it is most difficult, not to say impossible, for our separated brothers to understand Catholic doctrine when it is presented in traditional terminology. Well, let me ask you a question, Paul. You know, Mm -hmm. you came from after 20 years of being a Protestant. uh, Was was embracing traditional Catholic theology difficult for you, or is it over your head?
2: (laughs) No. As a matter of fact... I was thirsty for traditional Catholic theology by the time I, you know, uh, b- got reintroduced to, to, to the Catholic Church. Uh, in fact, that is something that is, so, uh, you know, tradition is sorely lacking in Protestantism. Uh, the traditions, and when you do have tradition, it only goes back to the Reformation, as you well know. Uh, uh, to quote uh, John Henry Newman again, to go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. And when you understand that church tradition, and when you research it, it apostolic tradition goes all the way back to the early church. You understand that either the Catholic church was, uh, uh, that Jesus, when he promised to send the Holy Spirit to guide the church in all truth, either he did that, which we know he did, or if he didn't do that, then he left the church in darkness for over a
1: thousand years correct yep perfect you're, you're you're spot on it says here on the other hand it's very hard for catholics to grasp the real sense of protestant thought for reasons bound up with with our own history therefore the council could explain catholic doctrine in a way that would take account of the things of language that that have occurred among our separated brothers from the time of the separation up to now besides due to a similar historical evolution in our own theological formations through which definitive and immutable doctrine is expressed, only a particular aspect of any given doctrine is elaborated. Thus, our theological propositions do not always express the full depth and richness of the revealed doctrine. The Council, the Vatican Council could, therefore, with an eye to the aspirations of our separated brothers, their problems and difficulties, develop especially those aspects of revealed truth which answer their deepest needs and expectations. See that last sentence? They failed. OK, mm-hmm. they, they failed. The the, the Council of Fathers failed in bridging the gap and bringing more Protestants into the church. The only reason Protestants come into the church right now is when they they run into a particular science of theology called apologetics, because a lot of Protestants uh, have that that hunger for reason and rational thought. When a Protestant runs into Catholic apologetics, that's when they come in. But that has nothing to do with Vatican II. Vatican II didn't push apologetics. Vatican II yeah. doesn't even mention apologetics. Yeah. In fact, for, for many of the Council Father liberals, uh, apologetics is a bad word. Yep. Yeah, and listen,
2: yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know why? Because rational thought goes out the window when it comes to modernism, Jess. In other words, the ideas that they have... Uh, You know, so example, if they want to embrace, uh, let's just use as an example, you know, you want to say something like uh, uh, people who are in homosexual relationships have gifts to offer the church. Well, well, there's no way apologetically uh, that you can come out with that you know when you when when you understand what the scripture says you can't you can't come out with the fact that they have gifts to offer the church but this is the idea that they embrace and so what they do is they ignore uh the clear teaching of scripture and just uh continue to push their agenda and this is why tradition is so important, because, uh, as you know, there's the two fonts that we have. We have sacred uh, scripture and we also have a sacred tradition. And when we
1: break from either of those, we run into big problems. That's right. Leaving aside the absurdly arrogant proposition that Catholic doctrine, which presented when presented in traditional terminology, might be impossible for Protestants to understand, Consider the cardinal objectives in light of Pope Pius XII's forceful admission of only a few years prior. Here's what this great holy pope said. In theology, some want to reduce to a minimum the meaning of dogmas, and to free dogma itself from terminology long established in the church and from philosophical concepts held by Catholic teachers. They cherish the hope that when dogmas stripped of the elements which they hold to be ex- in extrinsic to divine revelation, it will compare advantageously with the dogmatic opinions of those who are separated from the unity of the church, and that in, the, in this way they will gradually arrive at a mutual assimilation of Catholic dogma with the tenets of the dissidents. Moreover, they assert that when Catholic doctrine has been reduced to this condition, a way will be found to satisfy modern needs. That will permit, that will permit of dogma being expressed also by the concepts of modern philosophy. Some more audacious affirm that this canon must be done because they hold that the mysteries of faith are never expressed by truly adequate concepts, but only by approximate and ever-changeable notions in which the truth is to some extent expressed, but is necessarily distorted. Wherefore, Mm. they do not consider it absurd, but altogether necessary, that theology should substitute new concepts in place of the old ones, in keeping with the various philosophies which, in the course of time, it uses as its instruments, so that it should give human expression to divine truths in various ways, which are even somewhat opposed, but still equivalent, as they say. They add that the history of dogmas consists in the reporting of the various forms in which revealed truth has been clothed, forms that have succeeded one another in accordance with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the course of the centuries. We need to unpack this, Jess. When we get back, we need to unpack that. You said a lot. Yep, you got it. Jesus 911, two-man car, we're looking at... uh, Again, uh, the infiltration of masons at Vatican II. And uh, great article by Brian Miles. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151.
1: Jesus 911 two man car just Romero, Paul Clay. You know Paul, all of us have been victims of modernism just by the fact mm-hmm. that we live on planet Earth. I'll give you an example. Um, and it's funny, modernism, God can even use modernism in some way, shape or form. For example, I came back like into a real vibrant understanding of, of Christianity through the Catholic charismatic renewal. Mm-hmm. Charismatic renewal is a form of modernism. No, mm-hmm. no. Doesn't mean it doesn't ha- doesn't have some good elements to it, you know, like the the emphasis of of, of, of uh, reading your Bible, the emphasis of uh, developing a relationship with Christ. But by and large, it's it's borrowed Protestant Pentecostalism, and it's a form of uh, religious modernism. And so, all of us have been victims of modernism in, in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. Yeah. Um,
2: that's a good point, Jess, that you make. Um, and I'm just reminded of the scripture that says, you know, God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God, for those that are the called according to his purpose. You see, God has a plan. He has a plan for you. He had a plan for you from the from from the moment he you know he, he you know, he brought you into this world and before. And he's going to use everything, including um uh the good, uh, mixed the up and the ugly. In, uh, uh, mixed yeah. up and confused guy like Paul Clay to influence you, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, Uh, and so, uh, going back to what you just read though, yeah, l- listen to that first line, just in theology, some want to reduce to a minimum the meaning of dogmas, wow. and and to free dogma itself from terminology long established in the church and from philosophical concepts held by Catholic teachers. So here, here, this is a direct attack. We're talking about on sacred tradition. Uh, it's like uh, the etymology of words. Yes, after you know, you know, words spoken say in the 1500s, um, you know, they had a certain meaning. But those same words today, the meaning changes. And this is what you see: what the modernist does. You know, they want to. You know, they want these things to evolve. They want to. Trim off the, the sharp edges when yes. when scripture when scripture is clear. And by the way, uh, one of my favorite lines, and I, I say it often on this show: uh, if the truth offends you, you need to be offended. Yeah. You know, sometimes the truth is a hard pill to swallow, but we need to hear it. Um, and there's no way to soften up uh, hell. Yeah. You see, hell is a reality, and if we uh, through modernism. You know, you can almost get the idea that, well, some people have come to the conclusion, Jeffs, of a universal salvation, right? That, hey, we're all going to heaven. Nobody's really going to hell. And th- this is another example of modernist, modernism. And we see that, uh, as sacred scripture tells us, there's a way that seems right to a man. Mm-hmm. But that way leads to
1: death. Amen. You see, yeah. God warns us. Go ahead, Jess. Let me jump in in this article here towards... Look at the paragraph where it says... The, because here's the meat of it. Here's the meat of it. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. says, The French ac- academician Jean Guiton relates of something told him by Cardinal Tisserant When showing Jean Guiton a painting from a photograph which depicted Tisserant himself and six other cardinals, mm-hmm. the dean of the sacred college said this, quote, This picture is historic or rather symbolic. It shows the meeting we had before the opening of the council when we decided to block the first session by refusing to accept the tyrannical rules laid down by John the 23rd. Mm,
2: tyrannical yeah. rules.
1: Yeah, John the 23rd wanted to hold fast. He wanted the council to comport with tradition, but uh, they just ran roughsh- roughshod over him, Paul. Yes, and he and, yes, and so, caved in. Yes, caved so, it's, in. It's,
2: so essentially they said the Pope was a tyrant. Yeah, he's not, yeah. you know he's not the Holy Father. They viewed him as a tyrant. Yeah, and you know which is again just what you see here is the spirit of Protestantism. You know, right within uh, the council, right within the council. Yes, right within the council. And by the way, uh, which is also exactly what we're talking about. Uh, Protestantism is infected by um, Freemasonry. literally in fact yeah you know your freemasonry just uh moves about through protestantism uh
1: so easy yeah really yeah it's it's readily accepted like the knights of columbus and the catholic church yep look at these two paragraphs paul this is this is a bomb here in other words the coup was carried out by a cabal and as such it is no surprise that cardinal alfredo Ottaviani, he was one of the great cardinals at vatican II. he was a He was a conservative and an orthodox cardinal. It says, "...also found himself in the crosshairs of this conciliar offensive. As the head of the Central Preparatory Committee, he was naturally the prime defender of the schema, the draft. Mm -hmm. Thus, in a manner befitting the worst sort of mischief, the the attack against him would take the form of humiliation. Not content to simply dismiss the schema, their champion, Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani, needed to be defeated as well. Consider this, the following account from what John Allen calls one of the most perceptive books ever written about the Second Vatican Council. Here's what he says, quote, On October 30th, the day after his 72nd birthday, Cardinal Ottaviani addressed the Council to protest against the drastic changes being suggested in the Mass. Are we seeking to stir up wonder, says Cardinal Ottaviani, or perhaps scandal, among the Christian people, by introducing changes in so venerable a rite that has been approved for so many centuries and is now so familiar, the rite of Holy Mass should not be treated as if it were a piece of cloth to be refashioned according to the whim of each generation. Close quote. Speaking without a text, in other words, off the cuff, mm-hmm. because of his partial blindness, he exceeded the 10 minute time limit which all had been requested to observe. Cardinal Tisserent, Dean of the Council, the de- Dean of the Council of Presidents, showed his watch to Cardinal Elfrink, rang the warning bell, but the speaker, Cardinal Ottaviani, this good holy cardinal, was so engrossed in his topic that he did not notice the bell or purposely ignored it. At a signal from Cardinal Elfrink, a technician switched off the microphone after confirming the fact by tapping the instrument. Cardinal Ottaviani stumbled back to a seat in humiliation. The most powerful cardinal in the Roman Curia had been silent, and the council fathers clapped with glee. They
2: silenced him.
1: They cardinal silenced Ottaviani- him. Yeah, Cardinal Ottaviani was 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 the Joseph Ratzinger at Vatican II. What Joseph Ratzinger was for twenty five years, the prefect of the congregation, the chief catechist. This Cardinal Ottaviani was was the chief catechist the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith they called it the Holy Office back then at Vatican 2 he was an intellectual giant and they just slapped him down Paul
2: yeah uh, you know when I when you read this Jess it just it brings sadness to me uh, to see that uh, it just reminds me of the way they treated our Lord you know they treated him with the same disdain and yeah. hey let's remember folks. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus will persevere. suffer yeah. you see well, and the let's,
1: pers- let's see, let's see what adjust. it says here the next paragraph because it it explains look at the next paragraph okay this scene is positively surreal in other words a humiliation of cardinal taviani shutting down the microphone mm-hmm. from him at vatican City, shutting off the mic mm. here we have the same body charged with protecting sacred tradition openly mocking a plea to preserve tradition by cardinal taviani For all the endless talk about the Holy Spirit in Vatican II, it is quite alarming to find the Council so dismissive of those who simply wish to respect what they had received. It is one thing to undertake reforms from a posture of submission to tradition, but it is quite another when, as we've already seen, one's agenda necessitates the marginalization of that tradition. Contrast this attitude with that of Pope Pope St. Leo the Great, who once admonished his bishop to teach nothing new but instill into all men's breasts those things which the fathers of revered memory have with harmony of statement taught that the ears of the faithful may attest that we preach nothing else than what we have received from our forefathers. Yes. Accordingly, both in the rule of faith and in the observance of discipline, let the standard of antiquity be maintained throughout, close quote. Jess, so, theology 10 so,
2: yeah. theology yeah. 101 god is immutable you see if god is immutable and the church then is the bride of christ the body of christ you know then uh you can see that the church should not change and anybody that uh you know suggests that the church uh uh you know I, I, we yes we all know that doctrine uh you know starts out yeah, it develops over time, but I'm talking about making a change, the same type of change, I would say, like the theory of evolution tries to say that, you know, we all uh, we we change kind, we change species, you know, that's that's essentially what you see going on here in the church. Like, uh, it's like they've adopted the spirit of Darwinism. And, you know, if the church says that, let's say, you know, homosexuality is a grave sin, uh you know, and and now the church wants to say that, oh, they have gifts. You know, we're seeing something that is uh you know, it's a break tradition it's hostile a to tradition. Correct, yes.
1: Yes. It says in the face of such disconcerting events, it's not difficult to imagine that John the twenty third may well have lived to regret ever calling the council. But whatever the case may be. When Cardinal Ottaviani, when, when the Ottaviani example proves to be more of a feature than a fluke, it is time to reconsider what the council actually achieved. Was it renewal or revolution? Admittedly, even now, the latter proposed, pro, the latter prospect creates no small amount of dissonance in the minds of those who have only ever heard the council called great. But once again, upon considering the monumental collapse of the faith in the wake of the, of, of the, of the council, it's not enough to go on blaming fecklessness and false implementation. After all, there has been no end to the claims that the pontificate of St. John Paul II already accomplished the definitive interpretation and implementation of Vatican II. Here's hmm. the comment, my comment. All I could say is before the council, three out of four Americans were going to Mass on Sunday. 75% of Americans in the U.S. were going to Mass on Sunday. Right now, 50-some-odd years after the council... 12 to 14% of Catholics in America are going to mass mm. on Sunday. The experiment failed, Paul. We'll be right back. Mm. Don't change that dial.
0: Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526. Two-one-five-one.
1: Two-man car, Jess Romero, Paul Clay, Soul Patrol. Here's the meat of the article, and then we'll make some comments here. It says, If that's the case, what options are left? Although it's certainly easier, and in some respects preferable, to believe that the conciliar texts are simply above reproach, at some point, in other words, saying that conciliar texts are just like scripture, you can't question them. At some point, these admitt- admittedly ambiguous documents need to be judged not by ignoring their deficiencies but rather by a real episcopal rigor which insists that faith without works is dead if this can be accomplished the church might finally regain some clarity regarding how to distinguish the weed of doctrinal truth from the chaff of pastoral novelty and moreover she might recall that the chaff is sown not just through mistakes and, and, and mishaps but also through premeditated malice. Indeed, she might even begin to remember. Paul, can you share those five points that are a possibility as, as, yeah. for Vatican, as, as to uh, uh, what happened at Vatican II?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That there is, in fact, an organized cabal expressly acknowledged by Popes Gregory XVI, Pius IX, and Leo Thirteenth whose stated purpose is to infiltrate and destroy the Roman Catholic Church. That one makes number sense two. to me. Yeah, that number that's point number one. Point number two, that a member of this cabal, a priest who was identified as such and excommunicated accordingly, went on to predict some 90 years in advance that an ecumenical council would subvert the liturgical and sacramental life of the church. Point number three. That the exact character of this cabal and a description of its 20th century assault on the sacraments was identified by name in an approved apparition of Our Lady over a century before it ever came into being. These are all facts, yes. Our Lady of good yes. success. Yes. yes, point number four, that the timing of the conciliar changes in the church's liturgy conforms credibly with Pope Leo XIII's alleged vision of satan's 20th century ascendancy these are facts again yeah, yeah. Uh, number five that the historical events which led to these changes effectively invited and uh, the destructive influence of the infiltrators yes it did and like you said those stats that you uh, mentioned just a, a little while ago bear that out
1: absolutely yeah if the church should ever remember all this It is certain that almost overnight she would forsake the anthropocentric efforts to market relevance and entertainment, pandering to modernity, but instead the church should return to her Christocentric mandate to boldly proclaim the truth and reverently worship its author, pleasing God. And why is that? Mm -hmm. Because she would remember not only that she's at war, but more importantly, that she was once the victor Therein lies the diabolical irony of the whole thesis of, a, of, of, of of adaption. It's a complete farce. The church already knows how to win the war because she's done it before. Yes. Thus, all this nonsense about updating and speaking the language of modernity is nothing but a pleasant-sounding distraction. Mm-hmm. To be clear, this has nothing to do with making use of advances in technology, which the church has always done, often leading the way but instead about answering Dr. Dietrich von Hildebrand's timeless rhetorical question, namely, do we best serve God and thus man by soaring up to Him or by, dr- or by dragging Him down into our workaday world? Are we to promote reverence or peddle relevance? In the face of such an obvious answer, the real question is, why has a church for the better part of the century been acting as of the opposite were true? You want to finish it off, Paul? And then we'll yeah. comment.
2: The answer to this question is also obvious. The church's enemies seem to understand this truth far better than many of her self-professed defenders. And thus having tasted too many defeats at the hands of the church's supreme liturgical arsenal, the likes of the Alta Vendita have made it their mission to convince the bride of Christ that her victory lies not in spiritual arms, but rather material ends, and that her mission should therefore be to appeal to man rather than appease the Most High. This deception is critical to the stated end goal of the church's enemies, for to serve man instead of God is tantamount to the church committing suicide. It strikes at the very heart of her existence, but sadly— Until her magisterium decides to refocus its agenda, the confusion among the faithful will only continue to spread. Isn't that a fact? Uh, For for all those who sincerely believe that the church was meant to grow simply by attraction, i.e., an example, by the positive witness of charitable works with no recourse to conversion, confrontation, and condemnation— I will conclude by recalling the eight words that affected the greatest mass conversion in history. Yet 40 days and 90 shall, Nineveh. Nineveh. And, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. 40 days and Nineveh. Yeah. That's a mistype there shall be destroyed. Uh, perhaps someday when the church regains sufficient clarity, she will have the courage to resume a form of worship that is able to accompany and an encounter a sinful world not with pastoral uh, uh, obsequents but rather a radical call to repentance. Jess, what an article.
1: Yeah Brian uh, Mills did us a great service but you know Paul in the midst of all this, I still uh, I still ha- the, the words of Saint Peter burn in my heart. Uh, yep. Lord, to whom shall we go? You yes, have the please. words of eternal life. Amen. And we have come to believe. In other words, Paul, Holy Mother Church, right now, it's a big battleship. It's taking water. Yep. We've taken some cannon fire, and there's yep. water coming into the hull. Guess what we're called to right. do? We're called to you. You were in the navy. What do we? We're called to bail. <laughs> we're called to bail out the water. Bail out yes. the water. Man your battle stations. Man your battle stations. Grab a pail and start bailing out the water. There is no there is nobody nowhere else to go. Now some people will say, uh, "Well, you know what? It, 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 there's a bunch of hypocrites in the Catholic Church." Again, as you've I've heard you say several times, hypocrisy does not nullify the truth. Okay. Amen. If I, as a father, am a hypocrite to my children, if I say if I tell them to do something and do something behind their back, like you know, get drunk on a twelve pack my hypocrisy does not nullify the fact that i'm still trying to give them advice to live a sober life so Amen. as as catholics let's not forget there is no perfect church on earth that that's the heresy of donatism donatist was a 4th century heretic he was an african bishop he would have been saint donatist but uh again he he believed that the true church consisted of the only the elect and uh and he and uh, and again, he, the church was perfect. And so once somebody right. committed, once somebody committed an egregious sin, they were out. We're not a Donatist church. The The true church is in heaven. We have yep. the church here in Ephesians chapter five. Jesus is purifying us day by day by the washing of his word.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, well, well said words, Jess. Um, again, folks, uh, Yeah, you know, you could get scandalized. And unfortunately, a lot of people have been scandalized. But that, you know, but we ask you here on uh, Virgin Most Powerful, don't be scandalized because the Lord himself warned us that there would be wolves among sheep's clothing, that there would be tares among the wheat. And this is all we're seeing. And uh, listen, there are two aspects to the church that we know. There's that divine aspect of the church, and then there's that human aspect. Well, anytime you mix humans in there, you're going to have issues going on in there. But uh, we have been given 2,000 years of sacred tradition uh, uh, throughout uh, history, and as long as we hold fast to that which was passed down through the centuries uh, will you know will maintain and in the end just we know what the, we know we win in the end we yeah. know amen. that Jesus Christ will purify his bride
1: amen there there's three things that I think that if you hold to, hold of these three things you'll get through you'll get through the present storm that we're going through number one realize that we don't know everything period. I don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen in one hour from now. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week. So I know that I don't know. Number two, mm-hmm. I know that Jesus knows everything. Amen. Remember that. I know that Jesus knows everything. Yeah. Number three, I trust Him. Keeping Amen. That simple, <laughs> let me repeat it again. I, Jess Romero, I know that I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen in an hour. I don't know what's going to happen. Tomorrow or next week or next month. I don't know. Hmm. Number two. I know that Jesus knows everything. Number three. I trust him. Amen. Shall not the judge of all the earth just do what is right. Yeah. Amen. We got to realize that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's not some hippie like, you know, Mr. Rogers that our culture makes him out to be. He's a king. He reigns. Brother. He rules. He flips over tables in the yes. temple. He yes. scorns the den of vipers. He raises the dead. He rebukes the synagogue of Satan. Yep. This yep. is our Jesus. This is the Jesus we know and worship. This is the Jesus of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. This is the Jesus that will lead us out of this mess. That's it. Uh, this The Jesus that we know
2: says, Be still. And the sea... Become still, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, when we understand that the sea around us is raging and we're fearful and we think the ship is going to go down. Jesus is cool, calm, and collective knowing that everything
1: obeys his command. That's right. That's right. And as Catholics, our job is to evangelize. Okay. Yep. We got to bring people to Jesus and he'll clean them up. But too many Catholics are missing in action. Too many Catholics think that they're part of the, you know, witness protection program. Get out of your comfort zone. Yes. Be holy. Be ho- pursue a life of holiness. And I'll tell you, the 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 getting to know Jesus is life's greatest pursuit. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all our desires. Mm. And as Pope Benedict once said, "Quote: If we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing." Yes. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And
2: you gain everything.
1: <laughs> Lose nothing and gain everything. Well put, Paul. Well, that's a wrap. Jesus 911, two-man card. Just Romero, Paul, Clay. We're so happy you guys were with us. We love you, family. Amen. You guys are part of the VNPR family. And uh, it what a joy just to spend time with you every single day. God bless you guys and uh, and uh, and your families. <laughs> Up next, Gary Machuda. Stick around. You don't want to miss... Uh, hands-on apologetics with gary machuda as for us two uh, retired cops for christ we are eow end of watch we're out god bless you